Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and we have come to the end of Canto 4 of Purgatorio on the podcast, Walking with Dante. Can you believe we have gotten through four cantos of Purgatorio? I can't. We're the final lines of this canto, lines 115 through 139. This is my English language, rough, not poetic translation of the medieval Florentine, forgetting about the rhyme and the rhythm that Dante works so hard to establish in every line. Still, we're just trying to nail it down as our slow walk through Dante's matchwork comedy. If you'd like to see this passage, it's on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can find it there. You can also engage in conversation with me more about this interesting figure because we've come up to the first small ledge that runs around the mountain and we found somebody who seems to just be full of snark, lying in the shade beside a boulder in the noonday heat, almost for a siesta and almost in a fetal position. One of the most famous penitent souls in all of Purgatorio. Let us finish off the passage and hear what he has to say. Dante starts out. That's when I recognized him. Even the pain caused by my shortness of breath didn't stop me from going up to him, at which point when I got up to him, he barely raised his head to say, Have you clearly seen how the sun drives his chariot over your left shoulder? His lazy movements and curt words brought a smile to my lips, and I started by saying, Balakwa, now I'm not sad about your fate anymore, but tell me, why are you sitting around here like this? Are you waiting for an escort or have your usual ways caught up with you again? And he said, Oh, brother, why should I bother with this climb? I won't be allowed to go to my martyrdom because of the angel of God who sits in front of the gate. First off, I have to endure as many turns of the heavens on the outskirts here as I did in my past life, for I staved off my good size to the very end. That is, unless I'm first helped by the prayers rising up here from a heart that lives in grace, what's the good of any other if it can't be heard in heaven? At this point, the poet Virgil had already started to climb without me, saying, Come on, see how the meridian is now touched by the sun, and night uses her foot to shade the shores of Morocco. The end of Canto 4, a curious moment in which a soul, Balakwa, doesn't seem to even recognize Virgil at all. Virgil seems quite irritated or impatient to move on. We have lots to talk about here. Let's talk about some points of irony in this passage. Let's now identify this figure, Balakwa, and I've got a lot to say about that. This is going to bang on for a bit. Sorry about that, but there's so much more to say. I want to talk about the temporality of punishment in the passage. I want to go back to Beatrice because she's here. I think she's in this passage. We want to talk about that and why she's here. And then finally, I want to talk about this canto as a whole, canto four, and I want to talk about its position as a vertical reading against Inferno, canto four. As I said, I want to talk about points of irony to bolster my reading of this soul as an ironic figure. 
The passage says that Dante recognized him. Dante's still under some duress from his shortness of breath from that climb. He goes over to him and he acknowledges him. And Balacqua, who we now know is Balacqua, says, Have you clearly seen how the sun drives his chariot over your left shoulder? Remember in the first part of this passage, Balakwa starts out his very first speech by saying, perhaps you'll have to sit down long before that. And it seemed as if he didn't pay any attention to the scientific arguments, the physics arguments, the astronomy arguments. He didn't seem to hear any of that theological stuff about the mountain, that moral allegorical stuff. It seems like he focused right in on the pilgrim's emotional state, the greatest way to kind of slip in a little dagger. But in this sentence, have you clearly seen how the sun drives his chariot over your left shoulder? We now know that Balak was heard the whole thing about the sun's movements and the mountain of purgatory. Actually, now we can see that he, when he pokes at Dante, really is poking at the pilgrim. He's poking at his emotional landscape. Oh, you're so tired out. I bet you're going to want to sit down a lot on this mountain. <laughs> it brings up a little nasty snark in his character because clearly he's heard the whole thing. The thing goes on and Dante recognizes him and says, oh, Balakwe names him. We'll come back to that. You know, now I don't have to worry about you anymore because you're here amongst the redeemed. But what are you doing hanging out here? Why are you, why are you sitting around like this? And Balakwe responds, oh, brother, why should I bother with this climb? That is the best sentence ever. Why should I bother with this climb? Indeed, the reader, after all of that scholastic reasoning and all of that geometry and physics, may be feeling the same thing. Oh my God, why do I, why should I even worry about this? And surely that use of the word brother is unbelievably ironic. <laughs> a fraternal connection, of course, and we've already been told that his little sister is sloth. So, man, the irony must just here be so thick you could cut it with a knife. And then Balakwa says, and this is the ironic bit I want to focus on, I won't be allowed to go to my martyrdom because of the angel of God who sits in front of the gate. Balakwa calls the action of purgatory his martyrdom. Really? That doesn't seem like what goes on in purgatory. Purgatory is about purging you of your faults, of your sins. Martyrdom? That seems like you're being put to death for something. It's an odd use of the word here. You're not martyred on purgatory. You're beyond that. You're being cleansed. Balakwa's use of a very charged word is sitting there waiting for us to take notice of it. And then he says he repented at the last. So he says, I have to endure as many turns of the heavens on the outskirts. This is the first time we learn that we're not in purgatory yet. There's a gate ahead of us. This must be the <laughs> the exurbs of purgatory, at least the suburbs, but probably the exurbs of purgatory. So we know we're now on the outskirts and we know there's a temporality to it. And he says, I staved off my good size to the very end. This guy doesn't even pray. At least Manfred prayed at the last. This guy yeah, I can't even work up the energy to say a whole prayer. He just sighed and died. <laughs> this guy is truly a figure of 
unbelievable laziness here at the start of the climb. Let's talk just a minute about Balakwa and who he is. Of course, Dante identifies him, Balakwa, and we then have to ask who is Balakwa. And I'm going to tell you up front, actually, the answer is not knowable, but everyone thinks they know it. All right, now let me explain this. The early commentators, particularly Benvenuto da Imola in 1380, state that Balacqua was a maker of musical instruments in Florence. Later commentators go so far as to start inventing dialogue between Dante and Balacqua about Aristotle and a whole joke about Aristotle. And <laughs> Let me tell you, that's happening long after Dante's death, 60 years at least after Dante's death, before Benvenuto starts to claim that this guy is a maker of musical instruments in Florence. 60 years is a lifetime in the Middle Ages, a legitimate lifetime, more than a lifetime. And it's hard to know that that's exactly an identification. It could be. But just to say, my at times rather mechanical and scientific and materialistic brain says to me, it's not proof. I have hard and fast proof about who Manfred was. This guy, I don't know. It's hard for me to nail it down exactly. Modern commentators see him actually as a figure named Duccio di Bonafia, and that's because Duccio was a music instrument maker, and so they connect this Balacqua with this figure. Uh, we do know this Duccio figure died in March of 1302, which is after the climb here, so it's not exactly certain why Dante would have him dead then in 1300, the year of the climb. I See, again, it, it's all kind of funky to me. What I can say is we could posit that we might know who this is, maybe a maker of musical instruments. It makes some nice parallels with Casella earlier if we do that. But again, I can't put my full weight on those conclusions. Balacqua is a favorite of Samuel Beckett. In fact, Robert Hollander goes so far as to say that all of Beckett's, <laughs> this makes me shudder, it's such an overstatement, but all of Beckett is a rewriting of Dante's comedy through the eyes of Balacqua. Now, I don't buy that. Beckett makes lots of references to Balacqua. He even writes a story about Balacqua and the lobster. And there is absolute certainty that Balacqua is sitting as a kind of spirit guide behind the figures in Waiting for Godot. However, I have a hard time seeing Balacqua in Endgame. I have a hard time seeing Balacqua in other places in Beckett. It strikes me as an overstatement by a Dante scholar about a very important writer, Samuel Beckett, and kind of reducing his work to Dante. Hmm, it doesn't seem exactly right. Let me talk to you for just a second about how this figure has been interpreted historically. For centuries, this figure was seen essentially as an allegory of sloth or negligence, an allegory of a kind of sloth, not full-on sloth, which is knowing what you're supposed to do and just not wanting to do it. 
but instead a kind of negligence, a kind of just uh, lethargy, not, again, full-on deadly sin sloth, but instead a lethargy that just uh, just don't want to do much of anything. And that was the dominant way to read this character for centuries. Then people started reading this figure about the time Beckett as a comedic figure, as a bit of comic relief that we've come through some really drastic passages with Manfred, with scholastic thought on the unity of the soul, with the sun's position and all of that. And Dante here is giving us a break and saying, oh, hey, here's a little bit of humor to lighten the load of Purgatorio. I'm not sure I buy that. I think there's irony here. But I'm not sure I buy the comedic figure argument. Lately, there has been a lot written about Dante and the notion of repression and psychological repression and that psychological repression is the main block towards spiritual growth and that Dante is anticipating modern psychology by making Balacqua a figure of psychological repression. You should know that there are some people who even go so far as to say that Balacqua completely deconstructs comedy. That this is the moment in which Dante lets comedy almost fall apart. The misdirections of comedy become so pronounced here in Balacqua that, in fact, the whole structure of the poem starts to teeter as we find a figure who is so engaged with his will, and we know Dante thinks the will is everything, so engaged with his will that he just said, Buona, don't make me climb this mountain. It sounds really high level to say that Balacqua deconstructs comedy, but Balacqua himself does tell us that he has to wait here a certain number of years, the same number of years that he delayed his repentance. So he's not just hanging out here because he doesn't want to climb. But at the same time, he could go on. There's a long way ahead of us up to the gate of purgatory. He could climb higher, as we'll see, and climb up into some valleys and depressions ahead of us. He doesn't seem to want to do that. My take on him is that he's a parody of the contemplative life. Let me explain this. In medieval thought, uh, Christian thought, There is a grand division between the active life and the contemplative life. And this is played out. We're going to talk much more about this in episodes ahead between the figures of Mary and Martha with Jesus and Rachel and Leah in Tanakh or the Old Testament. The contemplative life will become increasingly important to the work of comedy. After all, what do you do in purgatory? You sit and think about your sins. You sit and reflect on what you did wrong, pride, gluttony, uh, avarice, lust. You're going to sit and think about these things in purgatory. You are being led into a contemplative place about your own failings. And then when we get up to Paradiso, we're going to find that the contemplative life is nigh unto God, this life of monastic, quiet prayer. It strikes me that Dante is very good about dropping early hints of the big themes ahead. We've talked about this. Balacqua is a parody of what will become the dominant thematic of comedy. That is, that the way to God is the contemplative life. And this figure here, our first little note of it in Purgatory, sitting in the shade in a fetal position, (laughs) 
trying to take a siesta, that's not the same thing as a contemplative life. Contemplation itself takes concentration. It takes mental effort. And this is not that. And I think before we set in to what will become a grand hymn, ultimately, to the contemplative life, our first node is a little parody of it. It ain't this. This is just sitting around in the shade, not wanting to move. One of the things that is interesting about Polacqua is that he, again, establishes the temporality of the pains. He says, I have to endure as many turns of the heavens on the outskirts here as I did in my past life. And there is this temporal notion of pain. In fact, if you just think about this, this is the nature of purgatory, that pain has a temporal function. In Inferno, pain is eternal. You get there, it's in fact going to get worse down the line after the last judgment, as we discover, but it itself is not going to end. In Purgatorio, we discover that the redemptive form of pain is tied to time, and this strikes me as an incredible movement forward, that there is a kind of pain that is atemporal and that is hellish, and there is a kind of pain that is temporary and beneficial. All you have to do is go to the gym and you know this. There's a Get on the treadmill and you know this. There's a kind of pain that is temporal but beneficial in the long run. Or maybe dieting or maybe marital counseling with your spouse or your lover, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. There's a kind of pain that has an end point, but it's redemptive. And that's different than a kind of everlasting pain, living in a terrible relationship and just living it out and trying to wait it out until the end. Not a redemptive pain. So again, in Purgatorio, pain has a temporal element added to it. So I told you Beatrice is in this passage, and I think she is. Balakwa finishes up by saying that that he's going to have to stay here for as long as he waited to finally, you know, uh, repent in his life, give up his good size, unless he's first helped by the prayers rising up from the heart that lives in grace. What's the good of any other if it can't be heard in heaven? What did Beatrice say to Virgil in Inferno 2? If you lead the pilgrim Dante, my Dante, if you lead him out and into the universe, I'll sing your praises in heaven. And remember that question? What good does that do, Virgil? Here it is stated just right out. If a prayer is not going to make any difference, what good is it? There's a little bit of inversion of Beatrice, or how's this? A poke at Beatrice in this line. And remember where Beatrice was sitting when Lucy came to her and said, go save Dante? She was sitting next to Rachel, who is the allegory in medieval thinking of the contemplative life. I think Beatrice is sitting in the background of this passage, in this parody of the contemplative life. Beatrice is sitting back there and even being poked a bit. And in fact, at that point, Virgil gets angry. That's the moment when Virgil's already started to climb away and says, come on, see how the meridian is now touched by the sun and night uses her foot to shade the shores of Morocco. It's, it's noon. It's the meridian. It's noon on Mount Purgatory. It's been six hours. 
since we came out onto the first bit of purgatory and the sun was coming up. And so it's six o'clock in Morocco in the structure of Dante's glow. But there's a little more irony here, too. Morocco is the last bit of land that Ulysses sees before he flees in his ship to purgatory. That's at Inferno 26, line 104. The last little bit of land is Morocco. Ulysses is a go-getter if there ever was a go-getter. And here we find a not go-getter. Here we find a negligent, lazy soul who's redeemed. So the go-getters don't necessarily get to heaven. Where's the justice in that? How come this ultimate go-getter Ulysses goes down in a whirlpool and ends up way down in the depths of hell, and this guy who can't even work up the effort to sigh, well, barely work up the effort to sigh at his death, how come he gets to be redeemed? Oh, the irony is getting thick, and Beatrice may be getting poked as she sits next to Rachel in the contemplative life. Let's talk about Canto 4 as a whole. Just think about how this thing works out. It starts out with scholastic teaching about the unity of the soul. Dante claims, you know, I couldn't tell that time was passing because I was listening to Manfred, and therefore we see that the soul is one thing and not several things, and he's de- he's debating a scholastic point about the unity of the soul, and then we get the whole physics discussion and astronomy and geography of the sun, and that turns into a moral allegory about the mountain, and then we get Balakwa. What happened there from scholastic teaching to the quadrivium and the sun's position to Balakwa? Does that make Balakwa more of an ironic figure? Does it indeed, to grant the point earlier, make him comic relief? Is he a reminder that some people, surprising people, are in fact redeemed when others are not? Is he, in fact, an example of a unified soul? He is his own negligence. See, the soul is one thing. He's sitting there as one thing. He's just the embodiment of negligence, as if sloth were his little sister. Or is it, and here's where I really come down on it, that misdirection is the only way to find the way. This seems to be the nature of Purgatorio and the nature of Dante's art. The constant misdirection is the way that the direction is ultimately found by by essentially losing the direction. This canto is always problematic because, you know, you've got all this learned stuff at the front and then you've got this kind of comic figure block at the back or at least a parody or a non-starter of the contemplative life. How are they sewn together? Well, there's various ways they're sewn together. Ironic comment, unity of the soul, or just a continuing on of this notion That surprise is the way that you finally find the way and learn the truth. Let's think about Canto 4 of Purgatorio in relationship to Canto 4 of Inferno. Canto 4 of Inferno is about limbo. If you remember, limbo is a very quiet place. There's a lot of inaction. A lot of people are standing around that green outside of that castle. Remember that bit? In some ways, this bit with Balakwa 
is a parody of philosophic leisure. I mean, you know, philosophy is the art of sitting around and thinking, right? And so the souls in limbo are standing around having their quiet conversations, thinking, cogitating. This is kind of a parody of philosophical arguments. Aristotle, in fact, is seated. He's sitting down when we see him in Inferno at line 132 of Canto 4 of Inferno. This figure is also sitting down. And beyond even all of that, a contrast with those slow, grave eyes. Here we have a figure who himself is bodily immobile, as opposed to the slow grave eyes of the figures in Limbo. Limbo is stillness, is quiet. And here in Canto 4, we have a lot of philosophical disquisition about the soul and the sun, and then a figure who is almost a parody of the philosophical stance, a parody of the stillness. It's in a kind of weird inverse relationship with each other. And if you sit down and think about this versus Canto 4 of Inferno Limbo, you'll come up with more. And one more thing, just think about the ways Cantos 2, 3, and 4 end in Purgatorio. Canto 2 ends with Casela. Canto 3 ends with Manfred. Canto 4 ends with Balacqua. These three figures form the back end of each of their cantos. Casella is a hesitating figure. He starts to sing Dante's poem until Cato scares them off. Manfred is a figure who is a not-hesitating figure. He's a man of action, a man of war, but he hesitated in his redemption. But in his active life, he was very much of a forward person. And in fact, he's the first sheep to step toward Dante out of that sheep-like fold of souls. So he is much more active. And then we come to Balacqua, and we're back to a figure of hesitation. Or how about this? Casella is a commoner. Manfred is definitely a noble. We're back to a commoner with Balacqua. These figures are definitely set in bracketed relationships with each other, with Casella and Balacqua bracketing Manfred in the middle, which only tells us that the spotlight's on Manfred. It helps shine the light directly on Manfred in Canto 3 by bracketing him with Casella and Balacqua. It allows us to see the difference with him as a man of action, a man who is easily able to tell his story, a man who can account for himself. We see the difference between him and the souls on either side of him at the end of their cantos. A lot to say. So, to conclude, let's go back and read the entire Balacqua sequence in Canto 4 from lines 97 all the way back to the end at line 139. As soon as Virgil had uttered those words, a voice quite close at hand said, Maybe you'll feel the need to sit down before that. At the sound of this, we both turned around and saw a huge rock to our left that neither I nor Virgil had noticed at first. We walked over to it, and some people were there hanging around in the shade behind the boulder like a guy who settled for a bit of sheer negligence. One of them, who seemed to be very worn out, was sitting with his arms wrapped around his knees, pressing his face down between them. Oh, my sweet Lord, I said, check out that one who looks lazy enough that sloth itself might as well be his baby sister. 
Then that guy turned his attention to us, barely shifting his face up along his thigh and said, Fine, go on up if you're so tough. That's when I recognized him. Even the pain caused by my shortness of breath didn't stop me from going up to him, at which point when I got up to him, he barely raised his head to say, Have you clearly seen how the sun drives his chariot over your left shoulder? His lazy movements and curt words brought a smile to my lips, and I started by saying, Balakwa, now I'm not sad about your fate anymore, but tell me, why are you sitting around here like this? Are you waiting for an escort? Or have your usual ways caught up with you again? And he said, Oh, brother, why should I bother with this climb? I won't be allowed to go to my martyrdom because of the angel of God who sits in front of the gate. First off, I have to endure as many turns of the heavens on the outskirts here as I did in my past life. For I staved off my good size to the very end. That is... Unless I'm first helped by the prayers rising up here from a heart that lives in grace, what's the good of any other if it can't be heard in heaven? At this point, the poet Virgil had already started to climb without me, saying, Come on, see how the meridian is now touched by the sun, and night uses her foot to shade the shores of Morocco. What a great and wild passage. Balakwa is one of the best. No wonder Samuel Beckett loved him so much. No wonder everybody stops and gawks at Balakwa. There are so many ways to take him. And again, let me just remind you that many people like Petrochi do not see him as an ironic figure at all, but see him actually as a warning, somebody who just tells the truth about what his condition is. I've interpreted it ironically. There are other ways to do it, too. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, do all those things to keep it up as it can be. There's a vast landscape of podcasts out there, and I appreciate your being on this walk with me. I look forward to moving on to Purgatorio Canto 5 in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.